Welcome. This is the Contreras Report and Hispanic View of America. I'm Raul Lowry Contreras. Got some interesting things to talk about today. First, let's talk about the future. The Census Bureau is making some projections that are really, really important for the Hispanic community and for the overall American population. Did you know that the Census Bureau is projecting that by 2060, Hispanics will number 111 million people in the United States. Actually, the, and be more specific, between 2042 and 2050, the Census Bureau is projecting that one in four Americans will be Hispanic. To be more specific is that because 65% of the Hispanic population is of Mexican origin, like me, one in five Americans will be of Mexican origin. One in five. That's good, and here's why. In 2016, there were more than 57.5 million Hispanics. Today, there's over 63 million. The 2020 census will give us a more specific number. Now, 65% of the Hispanic population is of Mexican origin, so that means about 40 million people are of Mexican origin in the United States. To give you an idea of what their place is in the pecking order, so to speak, the population pecking order of Hispanics, there are more Mexican origin people within sight of Los Angeles City Hall than all other Hispanics combined, Cubans, South Americans, Guatemalans, all combined. Now keep that in mind. Now the population is growing as we can see from 2016 to today, that's six million people in four years. That's about a million and a half people a year. Most of them are now native-born in the United States. That's important. The Hispanic is now the largest ethnic and minority group in the country and therefore the largest voting bloc in the presidential elections coming up six months. Let's look at the population as far as education is concerned because that is critical. In 1996 to 2016, that's a 20 year period, there were, in 1996, 8.8 .8 million Hispanic students in the country. In 2016, there were 17.9 million Hispanic students. 22.7% of all element, of all school and college students, Hispanic students in the country. Elementary school children, in 1996, Hispanics were 14.1% of the student body. In 2016, 23.7% of all students in uh, elementary school students in the country. High schoolers, in 1996, high, high school Hispanics numbered, or the percentage was 13.2%. In 2016, 23.7%. Bunch a bunch more. Here's where it really, really significant what's happened in that 20-year period of time. 1996, 8% of all college and university students in the United States were Hispanic. In 2016, 19.1, 1 in 5. That, ladies and gentlemen, is huge. Dropouts. This is the good news. In 1996, 
of Hispanic students in the 12th grade or in high school dropped out. And that was living up to the traditional, oh, Hispanics just drop out by the, by the ton and uh, they're not getting educated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2016, 9.9% dropped out. That is the biggest drop in high school dropouts, school dropouts in a 10-year period in the history of the United States. You can't find in anywhere else like that. In college matriculation, according to Pew Research, if you want all this stuff, go, go to Pew, P-E-W Research, because they really do a fantastic job. Hispanics are now number two in college matriculation. Number one, Asian Americans. Number two, Hispanics. Number three, whites. And number four, blacks. And that's really important in the long run because we're talking about the long run here, aren't we? Pew Research, I suggest you go to it all the time. Among other things, you'll find that the average Mexican-American, or the median age of the Mexican-American is 27. Okay, the most common age in America is 11 years old for Hispanics, 27 for Blacks, 28 for Asians, and the most common age among the non-Hispanic white population in America is 58. Non-Hispanic whites, 60% of the population in 2018. The median age in 2018 was 44 for white, non-Hispanic whites. Now contrast that with 27 for the median age of Mexican-Americans in the country. All Hispanics have a median age of 30, Asians a median age of 37, Blacks a median age of 34. Remember the Mexican-American median age is 27. The median age is Half of the people are above 27 or older than 27, and half are younger than 27. Now, in 1970, Hispanics earned 71% of white income. In 2016, that fell. And in 2016, Hispanics only earned 63% of white income. Now, that looks not very good. I mean, that looks like it's falling, but what happened is there was a huge, it, since 1970 is when the, the great immigration from uh, Latin America came to the United States. It started around 1990 and has, has gone up substantially then. So there's far more people, far more immigrants, and immigrants tend to make less money. So that's that. But on income, What's really important is that the Mexican income per person increases by two-thirds from immigrant to their own children. In other words, the immigrants are the first generation. They usually come here with less schooling, less skills, and earn less money. Their children, however, are born here mostly, and uh, uh, they're better educated, and they have more skills, and their English ability is better. And therefore, as a second generation, they earn two-thirds more than their parents. And that's really, really important. Now, here's another interesting fact of a subgroup of uh, the Hispanics. Is children who were brought here before the age of five, 
grow and grow up here have their incomes have higher incomes than their adult immigrant parents now keep in mind right now there's a, a case in front of the Supreme Court about DACA the deferred action for children that came here that were brought here illegally when they were minor children those very kids are the ones we're talking about here now they came here mostly under the age of five and what are they doing now they're working because they have a work permit and they earn far more than their parents did far more US born with one American parent earn more than with two foreign-born parents so being born here is one thing being born here to uh, immigrant parents is another being born here to an American citizen is another in other words and they make more money so whenever you hear people from the Center for Immigration Studies CIS or the Heritage Foundation say that their studies indicate that Mexican immigrants are forever going to be collecting more money from on benefits from the US than they pay in it's false totally and completely false because in their studies they never project an increase in income they say that the immigrant will always make the low income that he, he or she makes when they first start working in the United States doesn't take into account that they might own 20 restaurants in 20 years uh, starting off as a waiter or a busboy uh, which is more than one story in Los Angeles alone but they never take into account the generational chain the generational better education better jobs and more income which we already see right here from Census Bureau uh, material again Pew Research find it Google it and and there you'll get the facts don't ever pay attention I, I say this as honestly as I can never pay attention to anything the Center for Immigration Studies puts out because 99 times out of 100 they're lying as far as the Heritage Foundation they're more honest but they use some of their, their research is done by by obvious and well noted and noticed uh, racists I mean I don't know why they hire them but they do so let's now talk about a little politics how about Megan McCain the daughter of former United States Senator John McCain she came out in a TV program the other day she she's on the view she works on the view on ABC's the view but she was on being interviewed by uh, uh, Cohen of uh, the Bravo channel Andy Cohen and uh, in that interview it came out that she's planning to vote for Joe Biden Democrat she's a lifelong Republican and uh, she didn't say who she voted for in 2016 but we can guess that it wasn't uh, uh, Donald Trump and she says the reason she's voting for Joe Biden is because all politics is personal and I tend to agree in this particular case we must not forget that during the campaign in Iowa Donald Trump declared that Senator John McCain who was shot down over Vietnam and held in prison in, a, in the Hanoi Hilton for five years and was tortured almost daily arms broken and everything and and was just miserably treated by the communists and Donald Trump said that McCain wasn't a war hero 
because he didn't have any respect for people who were captured. He only respected people who weren't captured. And that is the stupidest, dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say, especially from a documented draft dodger like Donald Trump was. During time of war, he deliberately evaded the draft by not telling the draft board when he graduated from college and his student deferment ran out automatically. I'm not criticizing him for taking college deferments. I never took any, but he did. I don't care. That was legal. But what he didn't do was he didn't notify the draft board when he graduated. That's against the law. And then when he showed up for his draft physical, because they were going to draft him, he showed up with a letter claiming that he had bone spurs and that he could only serve, according to the military, in a case of national emergency, like, a, like World War II. Well, I'm sorry, because a reporter asked him which heel had the bone spur, and Trump said, I don't remember, excuse me, but I can tell you this, that every injury I suffered as an athlete when I was a kid, and, and particularly one that I suffered playing, playing football in high school, I can give you every detail. I can tell you when it occurred, who did it, and how it happened, and how much it hurt. But he couldn't remember being told, you have bone spurs and, and one foot or the other or both, and therefore you won't be drafted. Hallelujah. You don't have to go to war. He doesn't remember that. I'm sorry, but I don't believe that. Now, those of you that know me know that I am a United States Marine. Those of you who don't know me are finding that out right now. I am a United States Marine. I joined the Marines in June of 1959, and I was honorably discharged in June of 1967, eight years later. I love the Marine Corps. Let me repeat that. I love the Marine Corps. I loved serving in the Marine Corps. I loved serving the United States of America. And to have someone who evaded the draft illegally ask me for my vote, doesn't sit well with me. So I'm with Megan McCain. This is all personal. Politics is personal. That's my personal beef with the president. I don't care what else he does. This is it. So like Megan McCain, I will not be uh, voting for Donald Trump in November. Let me briefly tell you why. Why this is personal. In my reserve unit around 1962 or so, a uh, guy joined it. He was in his 40s, and he had been an 18-year-old Marine in the Philippines when the war broke out with Japan, when the Japanese attacked. He, along with thousands of other Americans, were ordered to surrender by General Wainwright, who was trying to save their lives. Well, this guy, uh, who was now a gunner sergeant when I met him, in the reserves, he, uh, he didn't buy that. And he and a couple other guys uh, took off into the jungle there and uh, tried to get away. They were caught. And he was in the Bataan Death March. He was in the prisoner of war camp in the Philippines and then transferred to Japan where he spent the entire war. The entire war. And here we were 20 years later and I'm sitting there drinking coffee with him and I'm thinking to myself, how did he do it? How did he put up with four years in a prisoner of war camp in Japan, treated like an animal? And here he is, drinking coffee with me, yakking away, 
talking politics because we both were on the same side and having a grand old time and I thought how did he do it the guy was a hero in my mind he survived he was more than a hero he's a survivor hero and for Donald Trump to say he had no respect for anyone caught you will excuse me Mr. President but I don't buy it okay so that's the Republican side let's talk about the Democrats two very important Democrat uh, uh, political action committees big heavy heavy duty guys are putting have just reserved a hundred million dollars worth of TV time for a bunch of Democrat Senate candidates and guess who they didn't put a reserve a dime of space for Alabama Democrat Senator Doug Jones you'll remember he won a special election to replace Jefferson Davis Sessions when Sessions became Attorney General Jones became the first Democrat in a generation to win an election in Alabama of course he was running against a real a sexual pervert nobody named uh, forget his name uh, let's forget uh, you know he was a judge and a really really bad evil person and this is a guy who was in his 30s and was playing around with teenage girls 14 year old teenage girls okay so anyway Doug Jones is now the senator and he is considered to be the most highly likely Democrat to lose uh, incumbent to lose in the November election we don't know yet whether he's going to run against uh, Jefferson Davis Sessions or the former Auburn football coach coach Tuberville uh, they have a runoff scheduled in a few not a uh, few days and then we'll have a candidate who will be favored over Jones and it looks like the big guys of the Democratic Party have figured that out too because they didn't reserve 10 cents of TV time for Doug Jones speaking of big-time politics you have the President of the United States Donald Trump signed an executive order the other day ordering meatpacking plants and poultry plants and pork processing plants to stay open so there won't be a shortage of meat uh, and on the market because of the shutdown of the economy because of the coronavirus epidemic we all know that because we are all having to suffer through that but what we have here is the president has ordered these meatpacking plants to, to stay open now everyone knows and this is documented by ice raids by immigration raids in pork and beef processing plants in the Midwest that a huge cohort of employees of these plants are here illegally working illegally everyone knows that so he's ordered the plants to stay open however a Republican congressman from Florida Matt Gates has introduced a bill that would require that the US government deport every single illegal alien or undocumented person however you want to label them he calls them illegal aliens he wants every single one of them arrested and deported now you can't have both you can't arrest and deport all the illegal workers in the country and expect the meatpacking plants to stay open because they wouldn't have any employees oh lots of unemployed Americans I don't see them rushing in to apply for these jobs you saw what happened when that one plant in uh, Iowa I think it was that had the largest bust of illegals ever and then they opened up the jobs and a 
bunch of immigrants from, from Africa took the jobs and they didn't last very long. And the result was they didn't have enough workers to properly and efficiently run the plant. So between Congressman Gates and the president, they should sit down and have a conversation as to who is right and who is wrong on the subject. Okay, a couple of trillion dollars have been voted by the Congress and signed by the president to help you and me and small businesses and, and businesses of all sorts uh, with help to overcome the problems caused by the national emergency and the coronavirus pandemic. What we have is the question, why are some companies getting help that they shouldn't be getting? For example, $28 million went to three coal companies. Coal companies. I mean, in just two or three years, there won't be any more electrical generation from coal. $22 million went to oil and gas services equipment companies. But here's the real clincher. A real good friend of President Donald Trump, a big-time contributor named Monty Bennett, he got $58 million in payroll protection program money. He runs a conglomerate of 128 hotels. He got $58 million. Now, he's given it back, not because he's a good guy, but because Joe Biden called him out publicly and said that this guy Bennett should give the money back because he didn't deserve it. Small business deserves it, not a conglomerate of 128 hotels. Two hours before Bennett announced he was going to give the money back, Joe Biden was on the public airwaves on television blasting Bennett for taking the money to begin with. I can't believe it. Well, he made a huge, Bennett made a huge contribution to the Trump re-election committee and then hired two guys for $50,000 lobbyists to lobby for him to get the money. Well, he got it and he's now turning it back in. Oh boy, thank you so much. Okay, this is Cinco de Mayo week, and this is what I'm going to talk about now. Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, what does it mean? Why do some Mexicans and Americans celebrate it as a holiday? Well, it's a time, really a rite of spring, and uh, that's really the reason for it. However, there is a historical reason for it. In 1862, in Mexico, on the 5th of May, the Mexican army of about 4,000 people, plus uh, some irregular Indians that nobody counted at the time, uh, fended off an attack by 4,500 Frenchmen from the French army and uh, 2,000 Mexican allies, monarchists. Let me start at the beginning. In January 1862, right after Benito Juarez, the full-blooded Indian who became president of Mexico, took office, he declared a moratorium on foreign debt. They had just come out, the Mexicans had just come out of a civil war. The liberals and conservatives fought the War of 1858, lasted three years, and the liberals won. The conservatives had borrowed money from European banks to finance the war, their war, and they lost. Well, Juarez declared a moratorium on the debt because Mexico couldn't afford to pay anything. And these European banks, or 
some reason, were able to convince the British government, the French government, and the Spanish government to send troops to collect their money. This was not government money, not public money. It was private money from private European banks, mostly Swiss. They landed in January 1862. The British and the Spaniards made a deal real quickly and were gone. The French, however, stayed, and everybody wondered why. Well, here's why. Napoleon Bonaparte III ran France. He hated the United States of America. You will recall that Abraham Lincoln was elected president in November 1816. He was sworn in as president in March of 1861. In April of 1861, just a few weeks later, the South military secessionist forces bombarded Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, and the Civil War began. So, the French were already there. The French, I mean, the Civil War was already going on when the French decided to come in and intervene because they, the French, wanted to conquer all of Mexico for the simple strategic reason of being able to supply guns, cannon, and rifles, and gunpowder, and other war material to the South because they wanted to destroy the United States of America and the South was trying to do that on their own. They couldn't do it on their own because they didn't have any factories, no industry to speak of. And they needed the help from the outside. The British wouldn't help. The French wanted to help. So they landed, they stayed, and in uh, April they started marching towards Mexico City from where they were Veracruz. They got to Puebla. There they, were, they had two Spanish-built forts, Loreto and Guadalupe, that were manned by the Mexican troops, and then in the middle was an infantry brigade led by Colonel Porfirio Diaz, who later on became president and dictator. So the French attacked, and the, they split their forces into thirds, one for each fort and then the middle. And the middle was uh, caving in of the Mexicans, and Porfirio Diaz's orders were to hold the middle at all costs. Well, he knew he couldn't do that, and because after a couple hours, uh, it looked like the line was going to break. So he rallied his troops and jumped on a white horse and led them into a frontal attack on the, on the French army that was struggling in the mud of the valley because it had rained all night. And they were being, the, the, the cannon from the two forts were, were really doing some damage. And then here comes Porfirio Diaz with his screaming Indian soldiers and Mexican soldiers and they blasted the French. They blasted the French. The French were, were so stunned by this frontal attack they didn't expect. They were throwing down their rifles and running away. And then the French commander, General Charles, Comte de Lorraine says, he ordered the, the French cavalry in, but they were on European plow horses. The Mexicans were on real horses. And the Mexican cavalry was a thousand times better than the French cavalry. They routed the French. The French were running away and on their horses. Their, <laughs> their cavalry was running away. Their infantry was running away. So the battle was over. The Mexicans won. And that was the Battle of Cinco de Mayo. That by itself is not very noteworthy. What is noteworthy is that kept the French out of Mexico for a year. They couldn't conquer all of Mexico because they couldn't conquer Mexico City. They couldn't even get there. So, yeah, they sent 30,000 troops in, and a year later they took Puebla and then took Mexico City. But then it was too late. 
Because in the meanwhile, General U.S. Grant and his forces from Tennessee came down and they captured the entire Mississippi River when they took Vicksburg and took it, the, the army there, the Confederate Army prisoner. They cut the supply lines. The Confederacy could no longer get anything from Texas. Nothing. Including anything smuggled in from Mexico. Of course, it wouldn't have been smuggled. It would have been open. So, when the Battle of Gettysburg happened in July, on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1863, the Confederates didn't have enough cannon, they didn't have enough gunpowder, and they lost the battle, and they lost the war. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a United States of America today because 4,000 Mexican soldiers and a few hundred Indians with machetes defeated the French in the Battle of Puebla, and it's Cinco de Mayo, 1862, the 5th of May. That's why I think the Cinco de Mayo holiday should be a holiday and should be an American holiday. Thanks for being there. We'll be there. We'll be here uh, shortly in another presentation, and we look forward to having you join us. Thank you very much. This is Raul Lowry Contreras of the Contreras Report and Hispanic View of America. Thanks.